hugely significant town. So if actually we can zoom back out and we're going to look at the whole Mediterranean here, and you're going to see on the far left-hand side of the picture there, the far western edge of the Roman Empire in modern-day Italy is Rome, the political center of the Roman Empire. And if we go down south to the north of Egypt, modern-day Egypt there, we see the town of Alexandria, which is the, the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It's, 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 it's the gateway from, of, of, of the Roman Empire into Africa. And then we have this town, Ephesus, far right-hand side there, modern-day Turkey. This was the, the religious center. This was the financial center of the Roman Empire and the gateway into Asia. It's a hugely significant town. Now, I want you to, to, I'm going to put it in modern terms for us, what this town would have felt like when we walked into the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is, is the, the, the sexuality of a modern Las Vegas, meets the greed of a, of a modern Wall Street, meets the, 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 the mystical, voodoo-like atmosphere of a modern-day New Orleans. You, you, you put those things together and you get this strange but important city of Ephesus. It's a city where the pagan stronghold is so strong. If, if you would have asked the, 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 the small church at the time, where do you think that there's just no way? Where, the, Paul's doing these journeys everywhere. Where is it going to stop? Where is the gospel going to stop multiplying among people? Where are they going to say, nah, not here? They'd all raise their hands and say, it's Ephesus. Ain't no way in that town. The gospel can't possibly prevail there. But it does. And if the gospel can make it in Ephesus, it can make it anywhere. As, uh, as uh, the, the, the old song says, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. If the gospel can make it in Ephesus, it can make it anywhere. Because the gospel is God's power at work, even in the most unlikely of places. And so Paul travels to this town, and then he begins ministry in this town. Let's pick up in verse 8 of chapter 19. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul does what he so often does, usually does, when he enters a town. He begins with the synagogue. He begins with the Jews. Why? Because the Jews were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And Paul comes with good news. The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he has died for you. And he's been resurrected for you. And he's entered in and opened up his kingdom. And he says, come in. And so Paul preaches this at the synagogue. Then we see he's going to get kicked out. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. That's an interesting little phrase there. It's actually the most commonly referred to term of Christians in the early, uh, in the early church. So they're called those who followed the way. Interesting, right? What's so interesting about that is that in, in, a, in, a, in a culture that much like ours is very secular, very open, lots of different beliefs, what set Christians aside was that what they were not offering was a way. What they were not offering was something in addition to something. They were offering the way, the only way, the only hope. 
And so they became known as those who offered this only hope in Jesus Christ. Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul goes and he leaves and he goes to this, this little philosopher's hall in the city of Ephesus. His name was Tyrannus, which, which means the little tyrant. So, you know, a real warm and fuzzy uh, philosopher, I guess, you know, really great reputation. The little tyrant. Paul, Paul goes and sets up shop in the little tyrant's philosophy sh- hall. It's a terrible, a terrible strategy, all right? Well, we know that Paul would have spoken in the middle of the day there. They, they, they commonly would have, would, would have met from the morning until 11 a.m. and then taken a break for lunch and a siesta and, and then come back in the evening for sessions. And so while Tyrannus and, and his students are away, they let Paul take up shop there. And so Paul is speaking in the dead of the day when people are tired. Nobody's tired here. Nobody's falling asleep here, right? Paul's talking to sleepy people used to taking their siesta. And he's speaking of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ for five hours a day. It's a terrible strategy. Bad place, bad time of the day. There's no reason this should work. But the gospel prevails. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ prevails because of who God is and because of God's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because of any any great strategy or any great program. And if God's gospel is going to prevail here at New Life and here in Tucson and in our lives and our neighborhoods and the multiplication of God's going to happen, it's not because we're, we're so smart here and because we're putting together that's so clever. It's because God is going to prevail. It's because his hope and his power is at work. Continues in verse 10. This continued for two years. Two years! Two years Paul is speaking in the middle of the day to people dozing off about the good news of Jesus Christ. And see what happens. He did this for two years so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Wait a second. It's working. Powerfully working. The gospel is multiplying even in Ephesus, even in the hall of Tyrannus. Because the gospel prevails in hearts and in lives that we never would have expected it to prevail in. Because God is powerful and he brings hope where there is no hope. And truth where there is no truth. And it prevails. Not, Not like a Pentecost prevails. This isn't like thousands of people on one day coming to faith. This is bit by bit. Person by person. Coming to Christ, sharing their faith about Christ. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip over the middle of this chapter, but but crazy things are happening as God is beginning to move there. God is bringing about miraculous healings and and people who are being freed from bondage there. And then something cool begins to happen. You see, they were all conditioned there that that yeah, we can we can hold on to something new, but we don't release the old stuff there. But as the way has its way on hearts and minds, people begin to release the old things that they held on to. 
they began to release the other hopes they held on to, the other good newses that they held on to, and they began to hold on to Christ wholly. We see this moment in the church, in this town that's sort of captivated by, by mysticism and magical practices, and, and they all had, uh, all had tucked away with them magical books, voodoo books, today's terminology. But they begin to realize that these can't exist with the only hope of Christ. So in verse 19, they bring all of these books and they burn them all together. This church, in, in today's terms, burns $6 million of books. This is huge because the way is having its way on their hearts and lives. The gospel is prevailing. But there are obstacles there are obstacles to the, the, the work of the gospel in lives. There are strongholds that come up against the gospel. We're about to see a big one. You see, I told you that Ephesus was an, a pagan town. But at the heart of that pagan town was, was a worship. A worship of the goddess, of, the goddess Artemis. One of the, the seven great wonders of the ancient world was found there right in Ephesus. And it was, it was the temple to the goddess Artemis. Here's what the goddess Artemis looks like. Strange-looking god, goddess, right? So, so she's the goddess of hunting. She's also the goddess, most importantly, of fertility. And so with her came all of these sexual rights, and, and there, there's, there's this promiscuity and this licentiousness that was all about what it looked like to worship her, temple prostitutes, and bad stuff happening in this town. In fact, we, we think that what actually is around her chest, or actually she's packed full of breasts, is actually what's happening there. This is not a healthy religion. Now, who was benefiting from this religion? Well, people were coming in from near and far to, to come and travel to Ephesus, and, and tradesmen would, would make sure that they could stop there because there were all sorts of perks, right, to coming to the Temple of Artemis. And along with those, you would always get something to bring home. And so the center of this financial stronghold at Ephesus were the silversmiths who made the amulets you'd bring home, the trinkets you'd bring home, the shrines you'd bring home, the idols you'd bring home. And they all of a sudden realized, what is happening with business? Why is business shrinking? It's the followers of the way. And everything was fine between them and the followers of the way until they hit their pocketbooks, until they hit their source of income, until they hit their source of comfort and of power. And the leader of the silversmiths, kind of the head of the union there, is going to come out and speak against the Christians. Verse 23, here's what happened. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who, silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. That's his real concern. Wealth and power. And this gospel, this Jesus Christ is threatening their seat. It's threatening their livelihood. So they come against it. And you see, 
verse 26. And you see in here not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods are made with hands and not, are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also this temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. He's going to now cloak his own greed and power hungriness in piety for the goddess of Artemis, the goddess Artemis. He says this, that the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. I love this. He's prophesying. He doesn't even know it. Know it. You know what's going to happen, guys? People are going to stop worshiping the goddess Artemis. You know what? I had to show you what Artemis looked like. People are not much worshiping Artemis anymore. Demetrius was exactly right because the gospel does prevail and it does break down strongholds and powers in our life. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they go and they, they, they go from there and they grab the Christians and they drag them into the, the, this huge amphitheater. It seats 24,000. Mikhail Center seats about 15,000. So another 9,000 bigger than that. You can see the ruins of it even today. Beautiful amphitheater. Drag them out into it. And they're going to kill these Christians. They're going to kill them. Fortunately, the gospel had prevailed in the lives of those even in seats of power. And so, so a town clerk comes forward whose life has been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, hold on, hold on. We're Romans after all. We follow procedures. So bring your case against them in the law, the place of law. And the crowd disperses. And the gospel continues to go forth in this town. Even against every obstacle, even against every, every stronghold, the gospel prevails. The hope of Christ prevails. But to prevail, it has to, it has to release, it has to break down these, these things that we clutch onto so strongly. There's a, a trilogy that most of you have either read or heard of. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. There's a figure and begins in the prequel in The Hobbit, Gollum. Gollum is someone who's become consumed with what? The most powerful ring. And he's, he's found this ring and he clutches this ring and actually his, his body changes and, and hunches and, and shrivels as he protects what? My, my precious, my precious. And he's shaped by that. We all have things that we clutch onto in our life. Those things that are our precious. And God says, release your precious. Release it. It's deforming you. And hold on to the only thing that is precious, me. What is your precious? What are you holding on to that you just don't want to get rid of? Maybe I can hold on to this and hold on to Christ. And Christ says, no, release. Release your family to me. Release your job to me. Release your comfort to me. 
Release your addiction to me. Release your secret sin to me. Release your sexuality to me. That I may free you and I may bring the true good news into your life to transform you. Two months after we bought our first home in Princeton, a home we thought we would retire in. It was was the home we had hoped for. We're so excited about this home. Two months later, our lives came crashing down. Our marriage fell apart. We, we, we had to transition out of our jobs, and so two months later from that, we're sitting there with half the income that we had purchased the house with, and we realized we cannot stay here. And so 10 months after buying the home, we left the home. We, in the process, had to sell half of the stuff that we had to downsize into a home half the size. And with each night and each thing that was sold, it was like a finger was being pulled back on mine, on me. Security and comfort, protection. And the future that I thought was nailed down in front of me was being pulled out from under me. Because God loved me. Because God would not have me holding on to something that was more precious than him. Jesus Christ is the only thing worth holding on to. Who is the man who brings the gospel to the people of Ephesus? It is none other than Paul himself. The man whose own religiosity, whose own self-righteousness was of so much importance, so precious to him that he hated these followers of the way. And he persecuted him and he attacked them and he killed them until the Lord of all stood before him and called him to release all and hold to him alone. So a chapter later when Paul leaves this church at Ephesus, a church that's so dear to him, a church that he's poured out three years of his life of ministry there, the longest place he'd, he'd stop at any of his travels. This is what he says in chapter 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as what? Nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I've released it all, even my life, because I know what's really precious now. I know Jesus Christ and his good news is the only thing that's precious. And you have seen the gospel prevail in my life. And the only hope I have is that it prevails in your life. We're going to close now with baptisms. Nine people who are going to declare Jesus Christ is the most precious in my life. I've released all to follow him. He is it. And with each of these baptisms, they're declaring the words of Paul and saying, he's the most precious. My life is of no account. The good news is the only hope that I have. What a powerful proclamation. For baptisms, we do them publicly. There's no such thing as a private baptism. Same thing as a marriage, right? You need a witness to be married. Why do you need a witness? Because 
For a baptism, as in a marriage, there's this powerful moment for those who watch. And if you're, if you're not married and you sit there and you watch a wedding and you hear the vows that are spoken, that this man, this woman would forsake all others till death do they part, you consider what would it mean? What would it look like if God were to call me maybe one day to that? Can I forsake all others for another? And if you sit there as a married person and you watch a wedding, you consider your own vows. Have I really lived up to this calling? What, what has gotten in the way of me forsaking all for my wife, for my husband? And so it is with baptism. If you watch and you've never been You've never committed your life to Christ. I just pray that you'd see the testimony and the hope here of the good news of Christ in these lives.